Well, it's on and anon and on, on and on. Market records don't stop till the break of dawn. It's the NAS, the DAQ, the S&P with the 500. Records keep falling, stocks keep climbing, investors keep breaking dough. Inflation's rising, yields keep diving, but there's really nowhere else to go. We had a great half, but that's all in the past. What will the third quarter show? The pace of growth's gonna slow, earnings may mellow, margins got nowhere to go. But investors need yield, and it's a pretty empty field if you really take time to assess. So rebalance, recalibrate, reallocate, and reset, and rejoin the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome aboard as we steam into the second half of the year. The Investopedia Express is brought to you by New Res. That's right, our first sponsor, New Res. The home buying process can be overwhelming, confusing, and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. New Res can let you know what to expect and take you through the mortgage process step by step. Learn more at newres.com slash findmyhome. That's newres.com slash findmyhome. Well, you have to give it up for the U.S. stock market. The S&P 500 surged 14.4% through June 30th, marking one of the strongest first halves of the year in the history of the benchmark index. Who would have thought? The good news is a strong first six months usually means a strong next six months. According to our pal Ryan Dietrich at LPL Financial, when the S&P 500 is up more than 12.5% year-to-date at the end of June, the next six months are up a median 9.7%. But we all know that past performance is no guarantee of future results. And the third quarter is typically the weakest quarter of the year. If you're investing quarter to quarter, that matters. But if you're in this for the long term, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. But you may want to rebalance before you get too comfortable. Consider this. U.S. companies will begin reporting their second quarter results in a couple of weeks. For many, sales and profits have been booming amid the economic recovery. Consumer spending strong, there's more than enough demand, and companies are finally giving guidance again. More than 100 S&P 500 companies actually offered earnings and sales guidance in their second quarterly reports, with 66 of them offering positive guidance, according to FactSet. Compare that to the second quarter of last year, when only 53 companies provided guidance due to a lack of visibility, and that guidance wasn't very good. Still, the comparisons between the second quarter of last year and the second quarter of this year will be very stark. It's what companies say about the future that we care about, so listen carefully to the words they use. Outside the stock market, we saw cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin explode in price and then tumble 50% or more. Commodities like lumber, corn, and coffee also spiked to dizzying heights, but most of them have corrected, except for oil. It's at a three-year high. U.S. Treasury bond yields doubled, but the yield on the 10-year barely topped 1.7% at its recent highs. That's not very interesting for investors seeking alpha. It's been the stock market show, and the total value of the S&P 500 is more than $36 trillion. That is an all-time high. Those highs have contributed to the largest gains in household wealth in history. The Federal Reserve said U.S. household net worth rose by $13 trillion in 2020 amid the pandemic. 70% of those gains went to the top 30% of income earners, and 30% of that went to the top 1% of wealthy households. That's what we mean when we talk about a K-shaped recovery. You had to be invested, or you had to have equity to have made gains in the past 14 months, and not everyone did. We know a lot of people joined the stock market in the past year, though. Robinhood Markets, the company behind the free popular trading app Robinhood, finally filed to go public last week. It said it gained more than 10 million new accounts from March to March. That's 151% growth if you're keeping score at home. Other online brokers also had record account growth. We know a lot of those people did a lot of trading 
especially of those meme stocks, but hopefully a lot of people took advantage of the opportunity to start investing for the long term. Lots of trading means lots of churn, lots of taxes, and lots of anxiety. Trade a little, but play the long game. It's much more comfortable. Let's get set up for the week ahead. With the second quarter having come to a close last week, U.S. listed companies will be preparing their quarterly earnings reports in the next two weeks, which also means they'll be in a so-called quiet period. Don't expect too many announcements, product rollouts, or major transactions until we get closer to the middle of the month. The economic calendar, on the other hand, will be pretty busy. On Tuesday, we'll get the Market Services and Composite PMI, that's the Purchasing Managers Index, for the U.S. for the month of June. Purchasing managers have been fairly confident about the U.S. recovery all spring, so we'll see if that continued. We know we're in the part of the recovery where spending has shifted from goods to services, so this will be the first report to show the impact of that. The June jobs report last week showed a surge in hiring across the services part of the economy, with 343,000 of the 860,000 jobs added going into the leisure and hospitality sectors. Those are in the services sector of the economy. On Wednesday, the Labor Report will release the JOLTS Report for May. We've been paying a lot of attention to the job openings and turnover survey lately because of the labor shortage here in the U.S. Companies of all sizes say they can't find enough workers to meet demand, and many employees are quitting their jobs in search of better pay and benefits or choosing to stay out of the workforce entirely. Wages, however, have been rising up 10 to 15% so far in 2021. If that keeps happening, the unemployment rate is likely to drop as the labor force participation rate rises. There are people like me who write about money for a living, and then there are great writers who happen to write about money but make it seem like they're writing about life. Morgan Housel is one of those people, a prolific writer, author of The Psychology of Money, a terrific book that came out last year, and a former columnist for The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal, now a partner at The Collaborative Fund. Welcome to The Express, Morgan. I am such a big fan. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Your book, The Psychology of Money, starts with this premise. Doing well with money has little to do with how smart you are and a lot to do with how you behave. And behavior is hard to teach, even to really smart people. So many think it's the other way around, Morgan. They think, and I used to think, if I'm not good at math, how can I be a good investor? How can I even fathom investing in the markets? What do we have wrong? It's not that math and tellability important. That's not the point. But there are skills that sit below your technical ability that matter more. Because look, you can have a PhD in finance from MIT. You can know all the formulas, all the data, you have all the analytics down. But if you don't have control over your sense of greed and fear, your ability to take a long-term mindset, how gullible you are, something like that, none of it matters. You're going to get hosed in the market. And we have so many examples of this. And now the opposite of that is that if you do not have a lot of technical ability, you're just a country bumpkin, no financial education. You don't know anything, but you do have good control over greed and fear. You can take a long-term mindset. You're not very gullible. You can do extraordinarily well in investing. So it's not that analytics don't matter. That's never my point. It's just that there's these things below it that matter more. And the behavioral side of it, because it's not analytical, because you can't teach it in school to smart people, because you can't sum it up in charts and formulas, it tends to be ignored in investing, at least much more than it should be in a field that is tend to be, it tends to be taught as an analytical endeavor. 
And what you're really talking about is emotional intelligence at the end of the day here. Can you control fear? Can you control greed? Can you think long-term? All these things that seem reasonable, but very hard in the moment. Your book's a collection of short stories about real people, real situations, their experiences with money. It's got interwoven lessons about our behavior in there. And so much, Morgan, has been written about behavioral finance. But as investors, many of us keep making the same mistakes. What are the most common ones we seem to make all the time? Well, I think the fact that people keep making the same mistakes is really important because so much of people's behavioral flaws, and everyone has different flaws, and everyone has flaws, and they're all different. So much of them are just ingrained in our personality. And it's not something that we can learn and fix. It's not like you can read a book and then change the chemistry in your brain, change the amount of dopamine and cortisol and adrenaline that you have in your brain. You can't do that. A lot of your, your tendency to panic or your tendency to have FOMO, that's just part of who you are. And you're never going to fix it to some extent. And I think that's okay if you just embrace who you are. And if you embrace that you are someone that has a little bit of tendency towards FOMO, a little bit of tendency to panic when the market declines, that's okay. Just situate your finances, your asset allocation to embrace that and accept it. So I think one of the biggest problems with behavioral finance is that people try to learn from it and fix themselves. I think by and large, we can't. The best we can do is become introspective about who we are and be honest with ourselves and maybe say, I have a lower risk tolerance than I thought I did, and that's okay. Maybe I need a higher allocation to more conservative assets, something like that. I think that's about the best that we can do. Daniel Kahneman, psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics, he's famously said that he's like the world's foremost authority in this stuff. And when you ask him, how has it changed him or has it helped him in his behaviors? He says, no, he's as biased as he's always been. So if someone like Kahneman can't be fixed in these biases, what do you regular guys on the street like you and I have to hope for. So I think the best we can do is just kind of figure out who we are and embrace who we are, which is important because most people don't. I think most investors just kind of go through the act blindly, assuming that we're all a bunch of machines and spreadsheets, and that if we just get the numbers right in the spreadsheet, the results will follow even if there's so much evidence that just that's just not the case. Great points. And right, if Kahneman can't fix himself, how can we hope to do that? But even, at Morgan, as we sort of dance around market highs, one after the other these days, that general feeling that investors get, yes, there's some optimism on the part of individual investors, but you also get that wall of worry as we get to these higher heights. How do those behaviors just start to kick in and force us to do things that might be unreasonable, even when times are good? We're all prisoners to our past. And the past that we've lived through, like we anchor to that as our model of how the world works. And I think this is especially relevant today for not the youngest investors, but people who are like older millennials, kind of my generation. I graduated college in 2008. So if you think of my generation, all we have known in our adult lives is collapse and then tepid recovery and then collapse. 2008, that's when we started our careers. Everything fell apart, had a really tepid recovery. And then COVID 2020, everything falls apart again. I think that generation, my generation, has been ingrained by the dumb luck of their experiences, of the generation that they're born to, that this is how the world works, that every five or 10 years, everything collapses and falls to pieces. And everything that you thought was how the economy worked just can literally overnight, boom, it's gone, poof, it's gone. That will leave, has already left a lot of emotional scar tissue on people, very similar to the generation that lived through the Great Depression. And then as soon as that was over, they got pushed into World War II sent off to war, that generation, and this is so well-documented, that generation went through the rest of their life not taking a lot of risk, not going into a lot of debt, et cetera. So I think our past experiences have a huge scarring effect on us. I was in Australia a couple of years ago, and at the time, they had not had a recession in 29 years. 
They have now because of COVID. But at the time, they went 29 years with no recession. And if you talk to an Australian, they thought about the risk of recession totally different than Americans. They knew it was possible, but to them, it was like a theoretical thing. Whereas in America, we're like, no, recessions, they will knock you on your ass overnight. They happen every five years and they'll crush you. And Australians, of course, they're just as smart as us. They have the same information as us, but because of their experiences, they didn't think about the risk of recession the way that we do. So I don't know whether we as Americans are overly pessimistic and concerned about recessions because of our, or if Australians were overly oblivious to it. I don't know which is the case other than acknowledging that we just become prisoners to whatever unique experiences we've had in life. So true. And bring it to the current day. We have millions of new investors, Morgan, who joined the stock market in the past years. You know, we just got Robinhood's S1 filing. We know they brought on a lot of customers. Most of these new investors or traders, as you know, they're attracted to the gambling aspect, the trading, as opposed to the long-term investing, the, you know, the building wealth over time. Does that worry you as a market observer and a market participant? Or do we just see this on almost every cycle? I think we see it every generation. It's the barriers to speculation are lower than they've ever been. If you think about my generation, when I was a teenager, we had Scott trade and TD Ameritrade and whatnot, and we were day trading penny stocks too, but the barriers to entry were a little bit higher. We had $10 trading commissions and there, there was not social media to kind of get excited with your friends about it. But every generation begins with speculation. It's almost impossible last year, try to tell a 19-year-old that the right way to invest is long-term diversified investing where you can earn 8% per year. They're like, 8% a year? I earn 8% a day trading meme stocks. That's kind of their experience in the last year. So you know, if you have any sense of market history, you know that's going to end. You don't know when, you don't know what could cause it. Like Maybe that will all unravel tomorrow. Maybe it'll go on for another two years, who knows? But you know it's going to end and you know that generation is going to learn about risk like every other generation has and always will. And if there is a silver lining to that, it's that maybe it's great that today's younger generation will learn about risk when they're 21 versus 48 and putting their kids through college, as a lot of boomers did in the 1990s. So maybe that's the silver lining to this, is that if, if you learn about speculation, the downsides of speculation early on enough, maybe you'll get pushed towards better behavior earlier on in your adult life. And maybe that, that's a good thing. But I'm not the kind of hand-waving person who says, this is all terrible and immoral and we should crack down on. I don't think I'm necessarily in that camp. I think speculation is good to a certain level, but when I watch it, I, you just know it's going to end. But I think that's, that's true for everyone, for every generation. Yeah. When I got into trading stocks early in my days in the late 90s, I was doing the same thing, speculating until I lost a lot of money, got burned. You almost have to do that sometimes. But you, with all of these people jumping in, you got to worry about it a little bit. Let's talk about your career path a little bit. One of your first jobs was as a valet at a hotel, but you eventually got into financial blogging and now you're a partner at an investment firm. Give us the path and the key pivot moments in your career because I think it's fascinating. I had a unique background in terms of I really didn't have much of any high school education. I more or less bypassed high school, not because I was smart, just because I didn't do it. And then I, I kind of got back into the game. So I started college when I was 20 or 21, a little bit later than other people. And I was the valet at a hotel in Lake Tahoe and then Southern California. Valet was interesting because it was my first experience to very wealthy people. I had a middle-class background. So then all of a sudden I'm valeting in a nice hotel and people were coming in in Lamborghinis and Bentleys and Rolls Royces. And that was my, my first experience of like, wow, there's, there's rich people out there and I want to be one of them. 
that was my first, like just trying to aspire to be that. And I just realized that the huge majority of them worked in finance. They were hedge fund managers and private equity guys. So that was my first of like, well, that's what I want to do too. That was kind of my early thought of, I want to get into finance. And then my early thoughts were, I want to go into investment banking or private equity. Never in a million years was it writing. I was not even 10 miles on my radar, but it was kind of in 2008, I just kind of serendipitously, haphazardly stumbled upon a writing position in 2008 when no one else was hiring. So when I found this financial writing job, it was like, grab that with both hands and don't let go because, because I had a job, which was something to say in 2008. And I thought I'd do it for six months or something before I found something else to do. But I ended up just falling in love with writing. Never thought I would. It was never part of the plan. But I like being an outsider. I like the fact that I'm not a fund, a fund manager in the trenches. In a lot of ways, I'm blind to the reality because I'm not in the trenches. But I think in other ways, that's good. The fact that I'm not biased towards the incentives of the business model of asset management or financial advisory, that I can just take what I think is not a better perspective. I would never say that, but a different perspective than people who are in the trenches. And I'm not a journalist either. I'm not a journalist for Bloomberg calling sources and whatnot. That's not what I do. I just want to observe what's going on as an outsider and try to put the pieces together. We see these different cycles, 2008, 2009. We saw the, the bust in 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis. You see the rise of robo-advisors. You see the rise of other investing platforms. You see cryptocurrency really coming out of that. Now, what stage are we in with that? We know people love to follow the price, but underlying all that is some fascinating technology and really the future of finance. How do you look at it from your perspective? I think in any new technology, whether it's crypto or the internet in the 90s or manufacturing in the 50s and 60s, railroads in the 1800s, there's a period where you have to distinguish between being pro-crypto and anti-charlatan, anti-huckster. And that that can, can get kind of hard because it kind of gets mixed together. There was a really kind of, and this is tongue-in-cheek quote from about a decade ago when gold was really big. I forget who said this, but someone said, investing is, in gold is not crazy, but most people who invest in gold happen to be crazy. And I think there is that element in so many different asset classes over time. And I think that's true for crypto today. I am pro-crypto, but I'm anti-charlatan, which often comes across as anti-crypto. And I think it's so obvious to me and millions of others that enough people believe in Bitcoin, let's say, to make it a thing. Enough people believe in it to make it a thing. And if enough people think something is true, it's just as real as if it's actually true. So enough people believe in Bitcoin that, of course, it's going to be a thing going forward. And that doesn't preclude huge booms and busts that we've already had. It doesn't mean that price can't fall 90% as it has in, in the past. But enough people believe in it that you know this thing is going to have legs going forward. You can't deny the fact that it rose out of sort of the ashes of the financial crisis, out of sort of a distrust for what is, you know, central banks and for the way money is really used as fiat currency around the world. Do you see the drumbeat around that continuing going forward? Probably because, I mean, the kind of central bank backlash against the Fed, that began in 2007 when Ben Bernanke started cutting interest rates in the summer of 2007, kind of the early salvos of the financial crisis. And it never let up. And here we are 14 years later, and it's as strong as ever. And a lot of the predictions that have been persistent over the last 14 years, interest rates are going to surge, there's going to be a failed bond auction, hyperinflation right around the corner, didn't happen. But it did not impact the message of people who are anti-central bankers. So I think the level of distrust is so strong that even when the, the bad predictions don't come true, it doesn't impact the central bank hate in the slightest. So no, I, I don't see that letting up anytime soon either, especially because the Fed has learned so strongly over the last 14 years 
that when the economy gets weak, if they pull out the bazookas and just start spraying money all throughout the economy, you can arrest a collapse really quickly. Whether it was 2008 or March of 2020, if you just pull out the big guns and start blowing cash throughout the economy, you can stop a stock market collapse. You can put money in people's pockets. You can finance a $4 trillion budget deficit for stimulus packages and whatnot. Now that they know that, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep doing it forever. There's never going to be another recession where the Fed says nothing we can do, where Congress says nothing we can do about this, because people know now that they can. Hey, you can just start sending checks to people. You can, you, you can triple unemployment benefits tomorrow. Now that consumers, voters know that, it's always going to be the case going forward. And because of that, I think the central bank backlash is not going to go anywhere. Well, on the flip side of that, does that mean that there will always be some sort of a safety net under the capital markets if we can just spend willy-nilly to combat any kind of a recession or black swan event? Is this the ever-grinding higher melt-up of stock markets that, you know, now that so many people are in it, it's too big to fail? Depends what your time horizon is. If we're talking about a five or 10-year period, sure. I think the odds that we will have another Great Depression-like stock market environment where the market falls 90% and doesn't recover for 20 years, I think the odds of that happening ever again are next to nothing. Because in that scenario, the Fed would just start saying, what do you need? You need $10 trillion? You need $50 trillion? Whatever you need. But just because the Fed's doing that doesn't mean, look, it was 14 months ago that the market fell 35% in two weeks or something. So just because there is this backstop doesn't mean you can't get enormous drawdowns. But will those drawdowns last 20 years like they have in the past? Probably not. But I don't necessarily think that matters. If we had a 50% drawdown that lasted one year, that would scare enough investors that enough of them would just say, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm not going to do this. Even if the Fed then stepped in and inflated everything back up, any sort of massive drawdown, even that lasts a short period of time, is enough to scar people. If you could teach your 25-year-old self one key lesson about money now, Morgan, what would it be? I would tell myself to worry a little bit less. And I think I have over the last uh, you know, 10 or 12 years. And maybe my worry back then was a good thing because it pushed me towards trying to figure things out and have in building up savings when I was younger. So maybe that was a good thing. But I think a lot of the really big concerns that I had 12 years ago, I would look back today and I would tell myself, it's going to be okay. That doesn't mean everything's going to be good. That doesn't mean you're not going to go through hard times, but things are going to work themselves out. And I think that's something that's easy to overlook for a lot of investors of any age too, is that just because bad things happen doesn't mean they won't work out over time. doesn't mean they won't recover and eventually work, you know, find a better path forward over time. So I think distinguishing between volatility and permanent loss is kind of the way to sum that up. That's true in life. If you're talking about your careers, your friendships, your relationships, and in investing as well, big difference between volatility and permanent loss. Yeah, great point. Great point. Hey, you're a great writer, and great writers are usually great readers. So what was the last great book about money you read? A book that I've recently reread, and I read it several years ago for the first time, but it's so good, and I reread it about a month ago, is a book called Fortune's Children, which is about how the Vanderbilt heirs blew their fortune. And the, the quick story is Cornelius Vanderbilt, when he died, was adjusted for inflation, was worth something like $400 billion. And in three generations, there was nothing left. They blew everything. And the book is about how his hairs blew it. And the astounding thing that I think is the biggest takeaway from this book is that none of them were happy. Not a single one of his heirs who are inheriting literally hundreds of billions of dollars, they, they were all miserable. And to me, like, there's so many takeaways about what money can and cannot do for you in that book that are relevant to 
us mere mortals that are not inheriting $100 billion. Great point and great recommendation. We'll check that out. And folks, you got to check out The Psychology of Money. Morgan Housel, I'm such a big fan. Thanks for joining The Express and keep up the great work. I can't wait to read what you're writing next. Thanks so much. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Ed in Alpharetta, Georgia. Ed suggests convexity for this week's term, and we like that suggestion given the record highs for stocks amid pretty tame treasury bond yields. Plus, we like the sound of the word convexity. Well, according to Investopedia, convexity is a measure of the curvature or the degree of the curve in the relationship between bond prices and bond yields. Specifically, convexity demonstrates how the duration of a bond changes as the interest rate changes. Portfolio managers and investors will use convexity as a risk management tool to measure and manage the portfolio's exposure to interest rate risk. Interest rate risk was a big concern about two months ago until inflation bigfooted its way in, but nominal interest rates are tame for now. We know they'll be heading higher as we get closer to 2023 when the Fed says it'll start hiking rates again. Great suggestion, Ed. You'll be getting a pair of the ultra-handsome Investopedia socks in the mail for your next summer stroll down to the Chattahoochee River near beautiful Alpharetta, Georgia. We'll let Jeff Bezos, the founder and now the former CEO of Amazon.com, take us out this week. Today is day one of Amazon's life without Bezos at the helm as he steps aside to let Andy Jassy run the show, the first time the company has had a new leader since 1994. Bezos is famous for his day one mantra. It's always day one at Amazon because he wants the company and its employees to always think they are in the first day of being a startup and to never get complacent. Here's Bezos at a company meeting in 2017 answering the question of what day two looks like for Amazon. Day two is stasis followed by irrelevance followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. (laughs) And that is why it is always day one. Bezos will still be executive chairman of the company, so he won't be far, except when he heads to space as a passenger on his Blue Origin spaceship on July 20th. The rest of us should probably stay grounded for a while, but never stop reaching for the stars. Special thanks to New Res, our sponsor for the Investopedia Express. If you're ready to buy a new home, the right resources can make a big difference. From finding your dream home to navigating the mortgage process, New Res has you covered for all your home buying needs. Learn more at newres.com slash buy my home. That's newres.com slash buy my home. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. Ah!